Hello everybody, my name is Darren, I write a blog called The Demon's Voice, it's about movies and shit like that. You can find it at ademonsvoice.blogspot.com and I'm also on Twitter at ademonsvoice, of which you should definitely follow me because why the fuck not? Hi you all, hope you're enjoying the current apocalypse that's carrying on and seemingly never-ending. I was reading before that uh, there's a chance that this virus might mutate into something even more exciting and deadly, which reminded me of The Thing, the John Carpenter movie, and I imagine that social distancing would sort of end with us all strapped to chairs two metres apart as Kurt Russell tests our blood with a red-hot wire to see if we are who we are. And then that reminded me of when I went to the theatre, if you remember those, those were like buildings we used to go to to watch shows, and I went with my friend Graham, and when I went to the toilet halfway through the, the show, I saw somebody in the toilets that looked a bit like me, not like a lot, but, you know, reasonable. And I wondered if that was an alien and they acquired all the information about me from my phone, because they'd just killed me, obviously, and then went back to Graham as a doppelganger, what could he ask the alien to find out if it was the real me, in which it wouldn't be able to know the answers from having, re you know, read everything on my phone, whether it be, like, social media messages or whatever, like, what unique information is there? So I asked Graham this question, and he said, okay, we met on the train before we went to the theatre, uh, what was I eating? As in, what was he eating? And I thought, and I said, you were having, you were eating a sandwich. And he said, well, what was on that sandwich? And I said, I think it was cheese and ham. And he said, did I have anything else with this cheese and ham sandwich? And I said, I think you had a pack of crisps. And he said, what flavour crisps were they? And I said, I don't remember what flavour they were, but they were in a blue bag, so I, I don't know, cheese and onion maybe? And he went, okay. And I went, was that, was that true? And he went, Darren, I didn't have any food on the train. And then the lights went back up on the show, and I just had to enjoy the second half of it, knowing full well that I was not myself. As it turned out, I was my own doppelganger. Um, but it's been fine. So if the, if the virus does uh, evolve the thing style, and we all have to become mutants of ourselves, it's not the end of the world. Um, anyway, so I watched Pacific Rim this week, which did feel like the end of the world, because it was a piece of shit. I saw it on Netflix, I did see it at the cinema. Uh, it hasn't improved. And I will talk to you about that now. Thank you all, enjoy, cheers. Pacific Rim Uprising begins with director Guillermo del Toro being strapped into a metal cage above a fiery pit by a creepy and racially problematic Temple of Doom-styled thuggy priest. Not literally, of course, although that at least would have been a momentary detour from the two hours of mind-numbing predictability that we did get. Del Toro directed the original 2013 Pacific Rim, which has only become a better and better movie on the extensive reviewings that I've given it. His was a film of colour and majesty that had both hidden depth and a message of unity that our shitty species have so far failed to understand. Every frame of Pacific Rim was laced with Del Toro's passion for art, whether it be his love of classic paintings, old Jerry Anderson shows, or simply the subgenre of seeing huge monsters being twat in the face by giant robots. For various reasons, he failed to sign on to this sequel, having instead decided to win an Oscar for his latest fish-fucking masterpiece, The Shape of Water. Quite right too, as for me Del Toro is an artistic genius that we've been blessed to live in the same time as. His films will one day be remembered in the same way that we remember Hitchcock's or Kubrick's, and if I was a director I'd want to follow him as keenly as I'd want to be pegged by a psychopath with a cactus for a strap on. Del Toro's heart went into his Pacific Rim film, and as this sequel began I saw that thuggy priest rip it out and set it on fire, as though showing it off to Indiana Jones a screaming woman and a small Asian stereotype. Pacific Rim Uprising begins with stacker Pentecost's son, Jake, living as the plebs of our world are starting to say, his best life. In case you don't remember, Stacker was the leader of the Resistance in the previous film, and was clearly better at fighting monsters than he was naming his children. Jake accidentally bumps into a young girl that has built her own giant robot because in the future children are apparently fucking geniuses. 
If some kid just paints their face green to cosplay as the Hulk, then I'm usually pretty fucking impressed by their effort. But this bitch has literally built an oversized working replica of a Transformer, and everybody acts as if that's fucking normal. Maybe I'm just old. I saw a kid learning some basic programming once, and I wanted to accuse them of witchcraft like I was a village fucking elder that spotted somebody reading without moving their fucking lips. I have no idea what they were doing, but to me it looked as though they were creating fucking Skynet. Although in the world of Pacific Rim Uprising, it is still considered illegal to create these robots that the young girl is making. I don't know why. But once caught participating in this hobby of building giant automatons from a collection of super advanced Meccano, Jake and the young girl are given the choice of either going to prison or piloting the robots for their country's giant robot army. They choose the army in which Jake appears to be put instantly in charge, for some reason, also don't know why. They're initially greeted at the base by a Scott Eastwood's character who quickly turns out to be the only person there that's above the age of about fucking 15. In the last film, the pilots were all adults, however here the people fighting are of an age in which they look as though they'd be excited just to grow their first pube. I have no idea where the real adults have gone, but as it stands, this film is like if Power Rangers had been directed by Joseph fucking Coney. So, the giant robot program here is under threat from a sinister rival company that wants to replace all of these children-driven robots with unmanned drones, which seems pretty reasonable to me. Call me old-fashioned, but I tend to err on the side of not using miners to fight a war when other options are available. It hardly even seems practical if it means our world is unprotected, when its only defence is either in school or fucking detention. We're also told that although the robots previously took two people to pilot via a connected brain gizmo, the scientists are now working on a way that will make it possible to control using only the one person instead. So instantly, it's pretty obvious that whoever wrote this movie wasn't paying much attention to the message of the first film, which was very specifically about how humanity needs to come together to survive. The two people per robot thing worked as both a metaphor and a great way of getting us to care about the characters as we see two people learn to understand each other throughout the movie. If there is any subtext to this sequel, then I have to admit that I didn't catch onto it, which is a polite way of saying that it didn't fucking have any, which is arrogant. Perhaps you could argue that the message of unity is reinforced by the time we get to that final battle, as it turns out that the robots do still rely on having two people to pilot them. However, this seems less as a result of the inferiority of the drones being proposed as a replacement, and more the fact that by this point the movie appeared to have completely forgotten that it even had this as a fucking subplot. I don't know if you've noticed, but I haven't really mentioned any of the giant monsters yet either, but that's because the film seems to have forgotten to include them too for the fucking most part. Despite the entire setup of this franchise being the joy in seeing a fight between massive robots and giant fuck-off monsters, we actually spend most of Pacific Rim Uprising watching nothing more than robots fighting other robots. Because there just haven't been enough Transformers movies yet, have there? In fact, even by the time it was over halfway through the monsters had still barely shown up, leaving me to feel like Jeff Goldblum as he looks to the camera and asks, do you eventually plan to have any dinosaurs on your dinosaur tour? By the time the monsters do arrive, it's a race against time to stop them from reaching Mount Fuji, because I guess they have to head somewhere, and so why the fuck not there? I have no idea why it's specifically Mount Fuji, but presumably the writers came up with a list of landmarks to throw a dart at, and we were mercifully spurred the more cliched American ones. Still, at one point a character works out that the monsters are heading to Mount Fuji by checking the location of all the massive beasties from the previous film, and deciding that was the direction that all of those were heading in too. So, now we're meant to believe that not only is every monster heading that way, but every monster ever has instantly walked in the direction of Mount Fuji, and literally nobody had previously noticed it. Perhaps it's unfair to compare this movie to Transformers, because despite hating it with every shred of my being, I can at least see that it doesn't have the director Michael Bay's pervy world view. However, whereas the first movie drew inspiration from everything from anime to wrestling, this movie simply draws from every generic action disaster movie of the last 20 years, and with even less style and flair than Britney and Justin when they decided to double fucking denim it. 
There wasn't even a villain in the first Pacific Rim film really, with the monsters representing our futile battle against the forces of nature to highlight our need to cooperate in the face of adversity. But by contrast, there actually is a villain in this sequel, and he is quite literally the kind of maniacally laughing cliché that even Sideshow fucking Bob would roll his eyes at. My friend Greg wasn't even able to steal an extra fucking biscuit in work through the week without a full internal investigation, and yet the villain of this film managed to secretly create millions of dollars worth of weapons in somebody else's fucking company. We don't get biscuits now thanks to fucking Greg and his lies. If there's anything to praise about this movie, then it's John Boyega as Jake, as Jake Pentecost, who spends the movie attempting to step out of the shadow of his much greater father, Stacker. Most of his time is also spent in the company of Scott Eastwood's character, with the actor presumably providing a great subject for Boyega as he researched what it must be like to have a far superior father. That's about all there is to say about the positives of this piece of shit movie, though. For all the big spectacle of the franchise, it was the artistry and passion of previous director Guillermo del Toro that made it what it was, and without his heart, the CG smash-a-thon means literally fuck all. In the previous film, we were told that the pilots were treated like rock stars by the world, but in this film, it's a fucking tribute act that's turned up, and they have not even bothered to learn any of the fucking songs. Thanks for listening, motherfuckers, and see you next time.